0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. This is an elder-led, elder-ruled church. Yesterday, the elders, your elders, met together for the whole day, and a kind of retreat, got away from the building someplace else. Max and Annie Carell opened their home to us, and we spent the day talking about largely about this church and the culture of this church and what we want to see retained, what we want to see change, and uh, what God's Word says about that. It was a good day, a very, very helpful day. And in God's providence, we come... Uh, to a text of scripture that really encapsulates a lot of the things that we talked about. Just where God has us. We've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. This is a church where he kept a very close relationship with, uncommonly close. And we've come to the end of the first chapter. Up to this point in Paul's writing to his friends in Philippi, he's been updating them about his affairs, he wants them to know about his imprisonment and his circumstances. They know about it, but they, he wants them to know how he thinks about it. And he's been sharing those, his perspective as he awaits trial before the emperor Nero for the cause of Jesus. And he's convinced that he's going to be acquitted and released because he believes the Philippians and probably others still need more of his ministry. He sees that need and he believes God Is going to bring about his release from this as the result of this trial, and so he turns after with this prediction of his release and eventual in-person return to Philippi. He turns from his affairs to the Philippians' affairs. He starts talking to them about the things that he wants to see going on there, and in view of his hopeful return. He wants to find them doing these things. And this is an a emphasis or focus that he's going to have in this letter and is writing um, through the 18th verse of the next chapter. Well, today we're going to look just at the first four verses of this new section focused on the Philippians' affairs. Paul lays out in, in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1 the essential characteristics of a gospel-worthy church. And that's something that we should care very much to be ourselves and to remain ourselves. Let's look at this passage together. Verse 27 of chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is God's eternal inspired word. Let's read it together. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul enters into this new section, new focus on the Philippians, with an interesting word, the word only. That's a word that seems to indicate that whatever's going to come after that word is like of the utmost importance. It's mission-critical, all-encompassing statement is about to follow. Only. Only what? When I come and see you guys again, I... I want this one essential thing for you to be doing. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the big imperative required by this passage that's impressed upon here. And Paul's urging that demand on the Philippians, that the gospel demands to be lived out in a worthy way. The gospel demands to be lived out in a worthy way. That's an interesting statement. We need to talk about worthiness for a minute. Normally when we talk about worthiness and the gospel, we see that as something God himself supplies for us completely. That's the heart and soul of the gospel. Worth is not something you and I have. It's something Jesus Christ has. And the gospel is that he offers his own worth, his own righteousness, to us by faith. When it comes to our standing with God, Jesus' righteousness is the only righteousness that counts. We don't bring any merit or worth of our own. In fact, what do we bring of our own? We bring our own um, disqualifying, hell-deserving sin to the equation, to the table. That's what we bring. We bring our guilt and our offense. But Christ has all the worthiness That we need. And he generously, graciously supplies it to us as we believe in him by faith. Not only did he offer himself on the cross as a substitute and a sacrifice to pay and atone for our sins, he also in the flesh came down and he lived a life of obedience and succeeded in every single place that we fail and proved himself worthy. And offers that own worth to us in the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. That simply by believing in Jesus Christ, we receive that same standing that Jesus has before God. When God looks upon a Christian who trusts in Jesus by faith, he sees the worthiness of his son. That's the gospel. So what on earth is Paul talking about when he talks about a life demanded by the gospel that is worthy? or worthy of the gospel. Well, he's not talking about a worthiness by which we in any way add to the work of Jesus or try to uh, achieve a certain standing or uh, respectability before God on our own. What he's urging here is an appropriate godly manner of life flowing from the grace of God and received by faith and rested in, in all its sufficiency. So uh, an embracing of the gospel by faith, the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness, should produce something in us. Something should flow naturally and very reasonably from that, and that is our own worthy response, our own obedience to God. True gospel, God-pleasing obedience is all downstream obedience. It flows from something that precedes it. It Our obedience does not precede reconciliation with God or seek to achieve it. It flows out of that reconciliation achieved by God. But that does not make obedience optional. You can see how it would be tempting to think now of obedience or any attempt to please God as optional. The scriptures do not see it that way. Here's a great passage um, that shows this principle, that the grace of God should result in obedience. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. For the grace of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Full stop, period? No, instructing us. Downstream of grace and salvation instructing us, it has appeared for this purpose, to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Just before that, if you have your Bible, you can see it, just before that in the verse preceding that, Paul talks about adorning the gospel, adorning it by a certain manner of life. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. And this is, how the, this is how the scriptures see true obedience, as, as something that we do in response to the grace of God to make it all the more beautiful, to draw attention to it, to beautify the work of grace. We adorn it. How do you dress for a wedding? Most of us know to dress up. Why do we dress up? Dress to the nines for weddings. It's it's our way of communicating to ourselves and to everybody else the importance and the significance, the, the meaning of this moment, this gathering. We adorn ourselves, men put on a tie, women a fancy dress, we adorn ourselves to communicate the worth of this gathering or of this thing, this ceremony that we're attending. It's the same way or a similar way with obedience that flows from God's grace. It is a response of gratitude by which we are given to communicate, portray, show, demonstrate the glory of God's grace and how much, how important it is to us. There's a real sense in which this worthy gospel living that Paul is commanding is really a way by which we show the worth of the gospel itself, how valuable it is. We don't show that by giving ourselves to disobedience. <laughs> it makes no sense. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a very well-known verse. He talks about how there's only one reasonable response, so one reasonable service of worship, and that is in response to the grace of God, which he's talked about for several chapters. We are called now to offer our lives as living sacrifices to God, it's our reasonable service of worship. And that's the sense in which Paul is calling um, us here to offer our lives in obedience to God and to live in such a way as to show ourselves worthy recipients of the gospel, not as we're trying to achieve something before God, but because God has achieved it for us. And there's only one reasonable response to that, and that is to give ourselves in grateful, joyful God-honoring, service, and obedience. He's not talking about that in just individual terms. It's important for each of us as individuals to think about that. But in this passage, he's talking about, he's talking to a church and the way that they live and operate together and the things that they think and they do and for what reasons. That's what He's talking to them as a body. And one of the ways he emphasizes that in this chapter is He uses, we don't see it in English, so I'm going to do a little Greek on you. But when he says, um, he gets this across with the idea of citizenship. That's the image that he uses here in verse 27. When he he says, conduct yourselves, that's one of those impossible to translate in English Greek terms, which really just means, um, be a good citizen. Isn't that interesting? So, Paul says, only this, this is the most important thing, be a good citizen, one who's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Interesting expression. What is he saying by this? He's writing to citizens of a Roman colony. Probably most of them have a Greek background, but they're living in a Roman colony, Philippi. And Romans and Greeks together have a highly developed sense of citizenship. They know what that's about. That's deeply imprinted in their cultures, an important aspect of their culture. Civic duty, civic responsibility and participation. And Paul is not talking to them first and foremost about being good citizens of Rome. Later in chapter 3, he tells them, our citizenship is in heaven. What he's doing is he's drawing on this thing that they understand very well, and he's applying it to their spiritual life and saying, Live out your citizenship, your heavenly citizenship together in Philippi in such a way as to show forth the worth of the gospel. The visible church in particular places, Bloomington, Philippi, this is like outposts of the kingdom of God in this world. Places where people who are called out of the kingdom of darkness gather together with one another as fellow citizens of a country to come, where their true and ultimate allegiance is. And as fellow citizens and saints of that, of that kingdom and country, they gather to work together and to encourage one another and are called and organized together for a purpose, to live out their faith, their citizenship in their town, in their place, where God has put them. And that's what Paul is calling them to here in this passage. And he gives them some specifics. So that's the first sort of general overarching statement. And now he's going to move on to some specifics, what this actually looks like in practice. He gives us here the characteristics of a gospel-worthy church. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be good citizens there in Philippi, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, living in a way that is worthy or shows the worth of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I at least will hear of you, that you are, and here are the things. Number one, that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So Paul gives these three things that a gospel-worthy church is going to be about and be doing together. They're going to stand together, they're going to strive together, and they're going to be unintimidated and unafraid of their opponents together. And he's going to elaborate on that last one to give more reason why why we shouldn't be intimidated. Let's look at each one of these things. First of all, the gospel-worthy church stands together. Paul, when he comes to Philippi, or at least he wants to hear if he can't come immediately, he wants to hear and find that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit. This characteristic or distinctive of, the, of a gospel-worthy church is it's, it reflects their defensive action. This is their defensive, conservative responsibility together. They have been given a heritage. They have been given the truth. They have been given a body of faith and of belief, system of doctrine. Paul has given it to them, and he says, keep it, hold it. Stand firm together. Hold that ground. Don't give it up. What you've obtained, don't give it up. This is something that's been very important to us in the history of our church. We've been around, I think, about 27 years now. And in our motto, our church motto, has three phrases. Standing for truth is the first one. Anybody know the other two? Ezra? Ezra? That's the last one. Excellent. What's the middle one? Standing for truth. Last. Rejoicing in hope. United by love. Those are the three things. But you see, the first one is standing for truth. That's something that's clearly important to us, and it has been since the founding of our church. The way God brought this church about and together and the way it was organized was around certain shared things that we saw as essential, necessary, vital And not just, uh, not only ultimately, not only biblically, but in this setting right now, in our cultural situation, these are things that are under attack that unite us and draw us together. We see as precious and essential and we don't want to give them up. What are some of those things? Biblical preaching to the conscience. That's a big thing that we a uh, desire to hold to and to practice. And we have s- experienced for, for many years the blessing and the benefit of, us, of that in our lives. Biblical shepherding, pastoral care, sexual orthodoxy, fruitfulness in marriage, sanctity of life, all things surrounding the anthropology of man, God's design for the sexes, purpose of sexuality according to the scriptures. Those are things essential and important that we have received and been taught and find precious and liberating and joyful. What else? The fact that we want intentionally to be a part of a church that's not anonymous. We want to be known and have fellowship and have it be a fellowship-centered church. There's a lot of churches where that's the, that's that's like, Everybody wants to be not known by each other. That's like ideal. We don't want that. We don't see that as any way biblical or helpful. These are things that have drawn us together, which we stand upon, have united us, are essential, and are attacked and hated today. Earlier in the first service, we practiced something that for many people is weird Infant baptism. And we have people in our church, in our, among our officers, even among our pastoral staff, who argue and disagree about whether that's a biblical practice. Why do we allow for those differences to, to be in this church and not divide us? Well, not because it's not important. It's an important question. Somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. But there are things that we agree are more essential at least now, that we can unite it over and that bring us together and we, don't, and we have so much agreement about and they're so precious to us that we don't want other things that we can agree are secondary to divide us. And the question of the time and the mode of baptism when it pertains to the children of believers is something, don't hate me for saying it if you're paedobaptistic, I agree is secondary. Important. But secondary. So places that are under attack, we have a duty, and wor- the, the only reasonable worthy response to God's grace for a church is to hold the ground it's been given. Okay? That makes sense? It's important. It's been important, important to us historically. Is it going to remain important to us? It better it's mission critical the first of three things that paul gives us here to be about as a church we are to hold ground and to defend what is essential from god's word the second thing is that the gospel worthy church strives together for the faith so paul wants the philippians to with one mind One mind to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. And this speaks to the church's offensive action or posture in the world. The taking of ground. First one's about holding ground. This one's about taking ground. Expanding the kingdom. Taking the message of the gospel out into the world. Proclaiming it as God's heralds. As missionaries in Bloomington or Philippi or whatever. Heralds of King Jesus announcing his kingship and rule and reign. Talking about his his grace and mercy. How he has made provision through his own blood for sinners and his enemies to be forgiven. And to have better position in his kingdom than that of a slave. To be sons together with him of the heavenly father to talk about the cleansing power of of his forgiving blood, about the transforming influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Guys, let me tell you, God has changed my life. And I know a whole bunch of other people whose lives have been changed by God. You should come and get to know the Lord with us and experience the blessing of fellowship with his people. Our duties do not end with defending the faith, holding ground. We must also actively seek to expand the kingdom through proclamation of the king. Now, that's something that doesn't appear in our mottos <laughs> so much. And that's because it, it's one, an area of weakness in our life in our history as a church. The elders yesterday, we took note of that. We've, you've heard us acknowledge it before. But as we were thinking about our church and our culture, we were asking the question, what do we want to be? Where do we want to grow? What is God's word, where does God's word most challenge us? And our, if we think about our current life together and, and our practice, where do we need most to grow? This is one of the places we identify that we want to grow ourselves as your leaders, and you together with us. We've tended to be inwardly focused, having an embattled and of entrenched posture, hunkered down, afraid to be known, enjoying together the things that we hold dear, but quietly, privately, where we're safe, here together, timid and shy, hesitating to announce those things or be open about those things or be known and understood in our workplace or wherever we are to hold those opinions and views and beliefs or to be a part of a church that does. Now, we also saw as elders that we have been making progress slow progress over many years and we're we're happy about that but we want to see this church and ourselves grow more so that the culture of this church it's more normal it's just like becomes normal to talk about Jesus wherever we are huh this is the look on everyone's face in the first service when i said this And trust me, I'm right there with you. There's encouragement in this very passage to overcome the thing that makes us timid and and afraid. And that's to come. But this is an area that's vital. We should should see this as part of the vital mission of a gospel-worthy church. Do you want to be a part of a gospel-worthy church? a church that's all about proclaiming the worth of the gospel and all of its activity and action, this is essential characteristic of it. We should want to be that. Now, there's a couple of things going on here, practically in the church this year, men and women, that I want to talk up for a minute that are going to be helpful to us. Stephen Baker, one of our pastors, is leading a every other week discussion, Bible study for men, and that is on apologetics. And we've already had one, and if you missed it, you missed it. I know that some men can't be there. Some men are working in other programs here on that night and can't make it, but if if you can be there, please come. If you can only come occasionally, come. That's okay. It is so good. And it's not... We're going to get, Stephen introduced this last week, he, we're going to get in the next semester to those practical arguments, how, our, how the biblical worldview can respond to the false worldview of the culture. But the whole first semester, and this is why it's so good, is devoted to the heart of the apologist. Where does this spring from? What kind of attitude should we have before we come to any argument Why should we even have the argument? In what spirit should it arise? With what humility and what compassion? And it's so helpful. Come, men, and be helped. It will be inspiring, and you'll grow. And we'll grow together. Women, I'm told by my wife that the women's focus in the discipleship is on hospitality through the books of Colossians and Philemon letters Paul also wrote around this time in, from prison and it's not about first and foremost hospitality to one another here but of opening our homes to the community just as God has opened his table and home to us it's going to be helpful this is a place we need to grow and we need to help each other grow. The verb striving together is a team sports word. It literally means to compete together with others, along with, not against, but alongside others. To cooperate vigorously, like a team. Isn't that interesting? And that's a helpful idea. Because it teaches us that while Paul puts this on the church as a whole, that we share together, this is one of the essential elements, that this doesn't fall to one man or one woman to do, one particularly gifted person, and everybody else can lay back and relax. It's not like that. This is something we share in together like a team does. And a team can have different Skills and abilities, that's what makes a great team. I've been watching some of those with my daughters, some of the the documentary about Michael Jordan on Netflix. Some of you might have seen this. What an amazing athlete. Incredible. He could never have dominated or won alone. As great as he is, Michael Jordan needed a team to win. May God raise up some heroes of, and some evangelists among us. That would be wonderful to have some high scorers, but they can't succeed without a team. We are made a team organized by the Holy Spirit. And we are to. We are, this is one important thing that we are to try to accomplish together. Like one man, that's what makes a great team. All the players knowing their place, doing their thing with all their heart, organized like one man. And they become a great team. May God help us to become that. That's the second thing. The third thing is like a quality that's essential for the success of both our standing and our striving. Both holding ground and advancing out into the world. And that is that the gospel-worthy church does not let itself be intimidated or put off by its enemies. Paul wants the Philippians to be in no way alarmed by their opponents. And that word alarmed just means don't be frightened or intimidated by your opponents. Every team has an opposing team that they play against. We do too, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. In all of our standing and our striving, there's naturally opponents. And we're not to be intimidated or frightened. I was thinking uh, this morning, getting ready to preach about The uh, giants in the land of Canaan, and how ten of the spies sent in were frightened by the size of them, and two of them had the faith, the kind of faith that we're called to have here, which is to not be intimidated or frightened, but to have our confidence in the Lord. Do you know that this church has enemies? It does. Some of you know well that this church has enemies, some of you may be newer and not be aware. The Bible says that's to be expected. That's just to be expected. That's the way it goes. And if we allow for the possibility that some of our enemies reject us because we've been sinfully obnoxious, even still, the majority of the hate that we have endured and suffered is a result of our siding with Jesus Christ standing for his truth, trying our best in sincerity and humility and love to care for people and to say no when people need to hear the word no. And that has resulted in opposition and persecution for this church over 27 years in this town. Jesus said that should not surprise us. In John 15, He taught his disciples, remember the word I said to you. Remember this, men. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And he tells them in the preceding verse why that is. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, citizens of a new kingdom, because I chose you, Because of this, the world hates you. And as we try to live as citizens of that kingdom, according to God's, the constitution of that kingdom, the gospel, we try to live according to that, and show forth its worth, we're going to be hated because it shows that we're not of this world. Paul said, writing to Timothy, late in life, indeed, Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus Will be persecuted. So scripture's up front and telling us to expect that. Expect that response. But it's still very difficult, isn't it? Even knowing that, even having been forewarned and forearmed, it's still very difficult to face persecution without fear and intimidation. I find, do you find, I find it to be very difficult. And Paul offers perspective here on the existence of enemies to help steel our nerve, stiffen our spine in this area. Verse 28, I don't want you to be in any way alarmed by your opponents. Why? Because of what? Because this is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. I don't want to trivialize this with too many sports metaphors, but Paul used the sports word. And I can't help but think about this in team competitive sports ways. But the very fact that another team showed up to play is a sign of victory. That's what Paul says. The fact that you're there for me and the fact that they're there against you is a sign of their defeat and of your victory. And amazing. That's how Paul wants us to think about it. Show up to play. You want to win? Show up to play. You get, a, you get some pushback? It's a good sign. Things are going well. Boy, isn't it hard to believe that, to see it that way, and to hang on to that in the moments of pressure? But that's how we're supposed to think and respond in our hearts to the presence of enemies. Our opponent's very opposition is a sign of their destruction. And we're to take comfort in that. And we need to be very careful and sensitive and humble. We could get real proud about that and smug and, and hateful towards our enemies. And the scripture says, no, 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 no. <laughs> like God, love your enemies. Bless those that persecute you. And we need to be sensitive towards others because a lot of people... The enemies in their life are loved ones. Children in their homes or who have left their homes. Parents who don't believe. And we should pray for one another's loved ones, who are our enemies. And the enemies of do they're our enemies because they're Jesus' enemies. And we should pray for them. And yet we're supposed to take comfort. As a, this is a sign, or this is a sign of your victory. Well, those are the ways that we show forth the worth of the gospel as a church. We stand together, called to strive together and we are called to not be un- or we are called to be unintimidated by the world together knowing that the very existence of opponents is a sign of their doom and of our glorious victory promised us in the scriptures and paul adds one last bit of encouragement along these lines here at the end in verse 29 he shows that god he shows what god's reward is for the gospel-worthy church. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So Paul's in jail. He's waiting trial before the Roman emperor. He doesn't know for sure how it's going to go. And Paul says this is has been granted to you, like it's a gift, like it's a prize, like it's an honor or something. I had that on, or something, because that's how we feel about it, right? It's hard to get excited about the reward of persecution, but that's how the scriptures see it. Jesus said, In in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. It's not only a sign of our salvation and victory, but of a reward, a big trophy, a Super Bowl ring, times a thousand, a million Great reward in heaven for those who suffer persecution and shame for me. It's no honor or reward to suffer for our sin. And that's something that scriptures point out. Peter, when he's writing about this and teaching this same principle, he says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. So there's no special, there's no honor or badge of honor for suffering because of our sin. And when we sin, we often bear the consequences in our lives and it's suffering and difficulty and pain. And there's no honor, there's no virtue in suffering in itself. But suffering for the for Jesus because of righteousness, there is great gain in that. We're not to suffer for being disobedient or wicked. Nor are we to kid ourselves, okay? entirely possible to appear righteous and be a jerk. It really is. I think I've been that guy. We are not to go out looking for persecution in order to prove our superior, macho Christian faith. We're certainly not called to do that when the cameras are rolling so that we can promote our super Christian macho brand. And that's something that's happening and disgusting. From a spirit of humility and of sincerity and of love for our town, real people, not playing for the cameras, not trying to prove something to ourselves, but simply because we love Jesus, we have experienced His grace, we want other people to experience it, and we know we have to pull out our swords and do some fighting with them to get them to see and understand the truth. With an interest of trying to persuade them, we need to be willing to suffer their rejection for it. Do you take comfort? Can you take comfort? Is it possible to take comfort from the fact that God promises a reward to those who suffer persecution? It's a stretch, but it's there. It's all through the New Testament and the Scriptures. And you and I need to learn to take comfort from that because it's real comfort offered. And it's real hope and promise offered. It's one of the big promises of the New Testament that is supposed to inspire us to action in these ways. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church that's worthy of the gospel. I don't want to pretend or waste my time. I don't want you to pretend or want to waste your time either. I want us together to be about these things. Standing for truth. Advancing the kingdom. Striving together for the faith. And together, learning how. Helping one another not be afraid or intimidated about it. But joyful. Seeing, ready to see through gospel, scriptural eyes that if there is pushback and opposition and persecution, well, that's a sign of good things for me. Of a great future and of ultimate victory. May God help us to see that way and to learn to operate that way so that we can show forth the worth of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I do ask that the power of your Holy Spirit would be added to this word. We thank you and believe that your spirit inspired these words from Paul and that they reflect absolute and eternal truth. But Lord, we see in ourselves great weakness and frailty and sin and hesitation to act and to believe and to hope in the ways that you would have us do. And so we need your spirit to be supplied to our hearts, to teach us, to help us, to strengthen us, to embolden us, make us to believe the things, Father, that we say we believe, help us to act accordingly. And would you give us joy in testifying about Jesus, with our friends and neighbors here, wherever we are, at school, at work, sporting events, wherever we are, may it become our chief joy to testify and proclaim to others about Jesus. And if there's suffering, that we endure because of that, to bear it cheerfully and in good hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.